0: 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Brethren, be the more zealous to confirm your call and election, for if you do this, you will never fall. So there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to arouse you by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And I will see to it that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when, he, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word made more sure. You will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God.
1: In what we've seen so far now in Second Peter, up through verse 11, the main point has been to urge Christians to make sure that they are saved. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be more zealous to confirm your call and election. Peter is aware that there are people who have made a kind of start in the Christian life of faith and obedience, but who have quit growing and who have drifted away into destruction, as we saw last week. He does not want that to happen to us, and so he tells us just how it is that we can confirm that we are among the elect and who are called according to or unto his glory and excellence. And the way that we saw last week to confirm our call and election was to stand firm in our faith and labor to press on and advance in virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These are the things that certify the genuineness of your faith and confirm that you indeed have been converted. If you have them and are growing, you will never fall nor be fruitless, according to verses 8 and 10. That's the main point so far. But there is an equally important subordinate point, which was this. God's divine power has been already given to those who believe, a power that leads to life and godliness. All our efforts to press on and add all these virtues to faith are only possible because God has already made an effort and is at work in us by His power through the Holy Spirit. We don't work to earn His favor. We are born along and enabled by His favor, which is given already in Jesus Christ through faith. And what's more, His power flows to us when we trust His very great promises, according to verse 4. And therefore, when the power of God enables us to obey Christ, it is always through faith. And no other kind of obedience for any other kind would be works or legalism. We do not secure our own lives by trying to merit the grace of God. We secure our lives by trusting so much in the promises of God that we want nothing more in all the world than to love like he loves. And as John says, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And therefore, the test of whether one knows God, that is, is called or elect or converted, is that he loves. Now, today, I want to follow Peter's thought on from verse 12 through verse 19, and then reserve verses 20 and 21 all for themselves Next week. So let's just walk through this text together and observe its application to our lives here at Bethlehem as we go. I'll read uh, the unit first of all, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in the body. To arouse you by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And I will see to it that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, I see four steps in Peter's thinking in these in these verses. And I'll mention them not in the order that they come in the text, but in the order their own order from the most basic observation up to the inference or the conclusion that Peter draws for his own action. So observation number one comes from verse 12. Namely, that the people he has in mind to whom he's writing already know the truth. They are established in it, well grounded. Uh, Do you remember... From Luke 22, what Jesus said to Peter just before he denied him three times. He said to Peter, after you have turned, establish the brethren. That was a commission to Peter. You're going to be an establisher. It's the same word as used right here in verse 12. And I think, therefore, that we might say Peter is looking on these people and saying... My work is done, or at least I've done what I'm supposed to do with you. Now, the implication that has for us here at Bethlehem is this. If we consider ourselves a church established in the word, which I think we are, this is for us. We mustn't say, well, this is just for beginners, these reminders and these warnings and these admonitions They are for people who are established in the word. Second observation comes from verse 14. The Lord is almost ready to take Peter out of his body. That he's he's going to die. It says, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. His death is near. The Lord has revealed to him it will not be long, Peter. Now, I think that has two very comforting implications for us. The first one is this. When we die, we go to be with the Lord. That's clearly implied here. The words used in verse 14 show that Peter considers the body like a tent or a garment. And death is like taking off a coat and laying it aside for a while. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we should take courage that when this old fleshly garment wears out, we will not go into corruption with it in the grave. Second implication of that verse... That I think is very comforting is that the death of a believer is never accidental from God's perspective. Do you remember from John 21 what Jesus said to Peter after his resurrection? How he said, They're going to lead you where you don't want to go, they will stretch forth your hands. And then John inserts, showing by what manner of death he should die. Jesus, Peter was going to be crucified just like Jesus was. And here, Peter says, not only has the Lord told me how I'm going to die, now he's telling me it won't be long. Now, how can the Lord speak so confidently about the time and the manner of Peter's death? Answer, he's in control of the world. He could, couldn't he? Just like in Acts 12, send an angel and rattle that Roman prison, take him right out of there and send him off to Germany to evangelize. He could do that. He did it in Acts 12. But he's telling Peter, this time, Peter, I'm not going to lift a finger and you're going to die by crucifixion. Tradition has it he asked to be crucified upside down so that it wouldn't be just like Jesus. So, neither should he, nor the people reading this letter, his beloved friends, nor we, should ever waver thinking that the death of a believer is out of God's control. That somehow evil has gotten the upper hand in the world. God always has the upper hand and no matter how untimely or tragic the death might seem God's perspective is universal and he does all things well yesterday I got a poem from my dad in the mail It's called a short poem of mother in praise of memory mother's day May 9 1982 is perfect illustration for this point let me read the first three stanzas Though now the pain... My mother passed away in 1974, for those of you who don't know. Though now the pain has long since eased, the mysteries remain. How one so full of life and joy could suddenly be slain. How easily the heart cries, Why? Why, Lord? Why not me? The purpose of His sovereign will is difficult to see. Yet... In the shadow of his wings one feels the love and care that mend the wounded broken heart and shatter grim despair. So, my dad and I believe it. No death, no matter how untimely, is outside the sovereign, gracious will of God. And therefore, Peter and we should take courage Now, the third step in these verses 12 through 15 comes in verse 13. Since the readers are already established in the truth, and since Peter's time is short on earth, Peter decides it is right, he says, I think it is right for me to spend the rest of my time on earth arousing them by memory of these things that I've been writing about. If the Lord told you this afternoon, um, your time is short, very short, just like he told Peter, your time is short, what would you devote yourself to? Peter's answer is, I am going to devote myself to increasing the lively memory of Christian truth. Evidently, he is convinced that if he can keep the greatness of the promises of God in the heads of believers, that it will cause them to hope in the promises and be diligent in the growth of godliness and the confirmation of their call and election. And then he'll be satisfied. You know what that means for us now at Bethlehem? It means that even though... We are established in the truth. We know the gospel. We're familiar with the Bible. Nevertheless, we need repeated reminders of the grace of God, lest we fall asleep or forget and begin to drift into carelessness or destruction. We must get out of our heads, if it's in our heads, the notion that our eternal security is a mechanical or an automatic affair. God is faithful and will always preserve to the end His children, but the way He does it is personal and living and dynamic and involves a real interaction between the saints and the living Christ. God uses reminders arousing reminders to see to it that we don't slumber into indifference and drift away. And we prove the genuineness of our call and election precisely by diligently taking heed to biblical admonitions and warnings and reminders. And that means, among other things, adding to our faith virtue and to our virtue knowledge and so on. Peter regards these believers, and I think he would include us, as established in the truth and yet in great need of regular reminders. If we need one day a year to remind us how much value our mothers have for us, whom we have seen and lived with, is it a surprise that we might need a weekly or a daily reminder of how much more valuable the promises of God are. The fourth step in these verses, 12 through 15, comes in verse 15, and just takes the third step a little bit farther. Since Peter thinks it is right to devote the rest of his few months, or whatever it was, to the ministry of reminding, he resolves to leave a letter behind which will go right on reminding them after his departure. I think that's what he means. I will see to it that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. The reason Christians should write wills is to see to it that what they have accumulated and learned in life is used according to the will of Christ after they're gone. And let me put a parenthesis in here, that if you don't have a a will, you're going to be a bad steward if you die. Get a will, it's not hard. Close parenthesis. Peter's last will and testimony is this letter. It's as if he were reliving the day on... um, You remember the day on the steps of the temple... When he was going with John in Acts 3, and the man was crippled beside him, and he looked and he said, silver and gold, I don't have any, but what I have, I give. Now, here he is at the end of his life. He still doesn't have any silver and gold, but what he has, he gives the church. He wills the church in this last will and... Testament, namely, an authoritative reminder of the precious and very great promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ, as we'll see in just a moment. And I think if Peter could glimpse down in this room today and see us reading this letter 1,900 years later and being reminded of this, he would just leap and jump and say, It worked! They put it in the Bible. It's working! The reminder is going on. So, I see four steps in those verses. First, Peter is concerned not just with beginners, but with people established in the truth. And therefore, this applies to you wherever you are along the way in in the Christian life. Second, he knows that his days are numbered, ah, but numbered according to plan. Third, he wants to remind Believers of precious and very great promises. And fourth, he wants to leave behind a last will and testament, and his bequest is the reminder that Christ is powerful and authoritative and that he's coming in glory. Now, verse 16 tells us why this reminder is so weighty. For. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. In other words, the reason Why my reminder about the precious and very great promises of God, which are all summed up in the promise of the second coming, the reason why this reminder is so weighty is because it's not based on myth. It's based on an eyewitness account of Christ's majesty. Now, three observations from that verse. First, the word coming here, you might be tempted to say, well, that that refers to his first coming but it doesn't because the greek word parousia which you probably have heard if you've done any reading it's often taken over into english refers to the second coming 18 times in the new testament and never refers to the first coming and that's the word used here it's used two other times in second peter in chapter 3 verse 4 and 3:12 and in both places refers to the second coming so that's what he's talking about i made known to you his power and second coming Second observation from this verse is that the power and the coming of Christ were part of Peter's earlier teaching. You see, he says, I made this known to you already. Now, whether that means in his first letter or whether it means he he taught among this people in person, it's hard to know. But this we may infer. This is no peripheral doctrine tacked on the end when he teaches. This is what he teaches. He has said it. Already, the, the doctrine of Christ's second coming in glory is not peripheral, it is essential. One of the marks of a living evangelical faith is a lively, serious, earnest, joyful expectation of the personal, visible coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. The second coming is at the heart of our faith and our confidence in it should be the faith of our heart. We should hope in it and say, come Lord Jesus. And the third observation from verse 16 is that this confidence in Christ's future coming is not based on a myth. It's based on an eyewitness experience of the majesty of Christ in the past. The difference between mythical speculations and Christian faith is history. Our doctrines are not the result of clever headwork, the spinning out of tales. They are the result of historical observation. This is why knowledge, that little word knowledge, has played such a profound, um central role in this chapter notice verse 2 grace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of god verse 3 his divine power has been given to us through knowledge verse 5 make every effort to add to your virtue knowledge verse 8 if you have these things you will never be unfruitful in the knowledge of our lord jesus no mistaking jesus considers or peter considers knowledge Central. Full blooded Christian faith does not flourish in ignorance. Sects flourish in ignorance. It is the ignorant and unstable who are drawn away into all kinds of sects. Two things follow in the wake of Christian mission hospitals and what else? Schools. And there's no accident about that. If our faith is not grounded in real, reliable observation of historical reality, it is a cleverly devised myth and unworthy of acceptance. And now, verses 17 and 18, Peter tells us in particular what historical event has given him such confidence in Christ's power and second coming. Namely, that experience that he had with James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember from the gospel story that he and James and John went with Jesus up on the mountain to pray. And while they were praying, Jesus was transfigured before them in dazzling glory and light. And then they were overshadowed by a cloud and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him! Now, here in these verses, Peter gives us his recollection of that account. It says, For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We heard his voice, born from heaven, For we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there. We heard the voice. We saw the glory. And so we know with what power and authority this Jesus will one day return. So evidently, Peter considered the eyewitness experience of the transfiguration as a preview of the glory that Christ will have at the second coming. And so it confirmed to him how precious and great is that promise. Now, Peter could have picked out a resurrection appearance and said, well, since he's raised from the dead, he will surely return. Or he could have picked out the day when he ascended into heaven and the angel said, he's going to come again, just like you saw him go. But Peter doesn't choose either of those. He chooses the transfiguration And I think the reason is because in none of those events did Jesus appear in his majesty. And that, according to verse 16, is what Peter is zeroing in on. He wants to show that Jesus is going to come one day with unbelievable, majestic power and glory. Thirty years it's been. Since that event. And it is indelibly stamped on his mind. When he closes his eyes, he can see it all over again. And he wants more than anything else to share with the saints at Bethlehem Baptist Church through his last will and testimony a vision for the glory of Jesus Christ when he comes. And so, in verse 19, the verse we'll close with, he emphasizes again that. The word about Christ's coming is sure. And then he calls us to give heed to that word to the end. He puts it like this. We have the prophetic word made more sure. You will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Peter calls it a prophetic word because the prophets in the Old Testament did predict the glorious coming of the Messiah. And he speaks of this prophetic word as now being more sure because it has been confirmed to him in an eyewitness experience on the Mount of Transfiguration because he saw in this eyewitness experience a preview of the fulfillment at the end of the age. And so in the last half of verse 19, Peter returns to his admonition, which he was giving in verses 12 to 15. There the point was, all Christians need to be repeatedly reminded of the glorious and great promises about Christ's coming. And here, the point is that all Christians need to pay attention to the prophetic word. And he uses a picture, which I'll close with. A picture to show us how urgent his admonition is. It's nighttime. You can see this now in verse 19. It's nighttime. The world is covered with darkness. I think he means the darkness of sin and deceit and fear and greed. Everyone who inhabits this darkness, and we all do, is in danger of stumbling over temptations that we can't see and avoid. And our only hope to survive the night is a lamp. A light. We gotta have a light to light our path. And Peter says the prophetic word of the promise of Christ's coming is that lamp. It's like a lamp shining in the dark place. And so his admonition is keep your eyes on it. Don't fall asleep. Don't turn aside to some bewitching song out there in the darkness where you could get lost and stumble into destruction. You remember now for two weeks, I have admonished you to put a carrot in front of you or a hot fudge sundae and let it lure you in paths of righteousness, guarding you from all the allurements of temptation right on into eternal life. Well, now I'll just let Peter say the same thing, only we'll change the metaphor. Hang a lamp in front of you. Namely, the promise of Christ's glorious coming. And let it guide you away from every temptation and around every stumbling block right on into dawn. Everyone who thus hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. The power of God... Unto godliness flows through the promises. He's never left his main point, has he? For three weeks we've seen it. And he's still on the same issue. If we've got a lamp of promise in front of us, we won't stumble. We'll make it through the night to dawn. Now what is it that lures us on? Two things. Dawn without and day star without. Within, the lamp will shine, he says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. His glory will appear and cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, and we will be like him. Revelation twenty two sixteen says, Jesus says, I am the bright and morning star. But back in chapter 2, verse 28 of Revelation, he says, He who endures to the end and conquers and keeps my works to the end, I will give him the morning star. Which is a beautiful play, I think, on the real meaning of what's going to happen without and within. The light will rise over the world and the light will rise in our hearts. There will be glory without and glory within. Is bright the sun that you behold? Then let imagination fly and multiply ten thousand fold. Then let the answer fill the sky. The Lord majestic will return ten thousand brilliant suns ablaze and in my heart a star will burn with endless worship in its rays. The whole creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the children of God. The righteous will shine like the sun in the children or in the kingdom of their father. If these things are so, what manner of people ought we to be in all hope and joy and godliness?